0: And then final two announcements you have in your bulletin, just to plan ahead, our Holy Week schedule. Lent has just begun, but before we know it, we'll, we will be, we, Holy Week will be upon us. But if you want to know the services and different things that will be going on at Grace, that is in the top part of your bulletin on the inside. And then the last piece I wanted to uh, draw to your attention, if you've never been in there before or you haven't been for a long time, I invite you, not all at once or it'll get really crowded in there, to go into the kitchen. Um, Last week I mentioned to you that uh, some members of our church instituted what they called Operation Deep Clean, and they were seeking to do a little spring cleaning in the kitchen in Hope Hall, and I haven't yet been in there myself, but I have heard from those who were encouraging people to come that there was a great turnout, very representative of our church and our school, a diversity of people who were there. So I say thank you on their behalf if you were a part of that, and if you weren't a part of that, which is fine, I invite you to celebrate their work by checking out how clean it is in the kitchen and in Hope Hall afterwards. It looks really, really good. That's where I'll be going. But like I said, if we all go at the same time, it's going to get a little crowded in there. So we'll need to pace ourselves. You have Matthew chapter 8 open by now, I hope. And as I mentioned, we're in the season of Lent. And for those of us who perhaps that word is new, Lent meaning 40 days. 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, not counting the Sundays in between. 40 days of following Jesus, of drawing near to him, of dying with him again on the cross, ...and being born anew through his resurrection. The reason why the church has set apart this time... ...it's not in the Bible, but the church centuries ago... ...set apart this time as a sacred time, as a sacred season... ...is it recognized that we need this journey. That the reason for this journey, why we need these 40 days... ...is so that in the midst of everything else going on... ...if we don't do it at any other time... ...we stop and reflect on what we believe... ...on who we believe in and on who we follow... And for us here at Grace, during these next 40 days, we are going to do that by wrestling with perhaps the most fundamental question of our human existence. And without a doubt, the most fundamental question of our Christian identity. It's a question that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're, where we'll be spending our time. It's a question that Jesus asks each and every person who ever lives, but especially those who would follow him. It's the question that Jesus poses to his disciples that we focused on at Ash Wednesday... But what about you, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? How we answer this question, beloved, reveals as much about us, about who we are, where we stand in relationship to Jesus as it does about him. And we begin our series this morning by recognizing that this fundamental question is, among other things, a question about trust. Trust. Who do you trust? Who do we trust and why? Is it our spouse, a friend, a parent, a teacher, our mechanic? Who do we trust and why? Who do we pay attention to in our lives? Who do we listen to? Not just hear, but listen to. Who do we give authority to in our lives? Who are we willing to follow into the unknown? Who are we willing to follow into the unexpected or the uncertain? Who do we rely on when the going gets tough? Or maybe even when life itself is on the line. Today's passage is about trust. We are going to meet some people who are prepared to follow Jesus. But the question is, do they trust him? The question is, do we trust him? And what does this mean? From Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When they arrived at the other side in the region of Genrenes, two demon-possessed men came from tombs to meet them. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First, we are presented with two similar yet distinct individuals. Both of them think they know who Jesus is. Both of them are bold enough to step forward from the rest of the crowd surrounding Jesus and to actually speak up to encounter him. But one is an eager ...earnest, would-be volunteer. The other is a tentative, hesitant follower. One is a fellow teacher, a scribe, we're told... ...a scholar who's willing to learn from Jesus. The other is a student, a disciple... ...one who's already committed to studying under Jesus. This would-be volunteer, this scribe... ...correctly identifies Jesus as teacher. But in his eagerness... He invites himself along. He doesn't ask to follow. He doesn't wait to be invited to follow, which was customary in that day with a rabbi. He presumes that he can follow, that he will follow Jesus. And so Jesus teaches this scholar, this earnest, would be volunteer, his first lesson. Jesus describes to him the circumstances under which he lives. He has no home. The scribe is willing to go anywhere with Jesus, but doesn't understand with Jesus, it's not about going anywhere. It's about giving up everything. It's not about the destination, if you will. It's about the journey. Easter Sunday comes by way of Good Friday. Getting to heaven comes by way of leaving home. Taking up our cross. And our cross isn't what we would call home. We are pilgrims, beloved. This is not our final destination. And Jesus is saying both to this would-be volunteer and to us, don't get comfortable. Count the cost. The implication, we don't know much more, but the implication seems to be in the way Matthew gives it to us is that Jesus turned this enthusiastic but naive scholar away. And in contrast to potentially turning this man away by his response, Jesus, in fact, seems to encourage the other man, the hesitant student, the tentative follower. What's inferred in this exchange, because he speaks first, the the hesitant student, is that Jesus has already engaged him, that Jesus has previously extended an invitation to go with him, to learn from him. Unlike the first man, the scholar the scribe, this man is already a disciple. But this guy is on the fence. He wants to wait, and so he tries to reason. He, he tries to negotiate with Jesus. I, I've just got to bury my father, and then I'll follow you. His father, by the way, is probably not dead. What this man is likely saying is that he has to look after his father in his old age, and he has to wait until he dies, whenever that might be, and then he can follow Jesus. Then I'll follow you, Jesus. Then I'll, I'll be your disciple later. And Jesus' answer here is strong. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, Jesus isn't condemning burials, or, and Jesus is not here calling Christians to abandon their parents or loved ones. What Jesus is stressing to this hesitant student, this tentative disciple, is that following Jesus, trusting Jesus, is not something that can be lived out half heartedly. It cannot be delayed, it cannot be negotiated. If Jesus is who we profess that he is, then serving him must be our highest priority. If Jesus is the one that we trust with our very lives, then we need to orient our lives around his life. We need to stop worrying and letting death define our relationship to the living. Many of us live our lives based upon Avoiding, ignoring, cheating, delaying death. And Jesus is saying, if you know me and if you follow me, then you have to reorient how you live. If you're going to follow me, you need to follow me now. Because apart from me, there is no tomorrow. There is no later. Now, despite how I've presented this to you, it's sitting there in the Bible, and if you continue to read it, go back to it, I mean, it just jumps off the page. Let's face it, Jesus' words here, even as I've presented it to you, are in both encounters, frankly, are intense. These are not the scriptures that most people memorize. These are not the scriptures that most people quote in, as means of encouragement. This kind of talk, we're not, this is not normally what we like to hear from Jesus, and this kind of talk, it doesn't, we don't like to hear it because it makes us a little uncomfortable. And beloved, that's the point. Following Jesus, trusting Jesus, pushes us out of our comfort zones. The truth is that most of us don't want to be uncomfortable. The truth is that most of us want to live our lives, in fact, with the least amount of hassle and interference, right? We don't want to stand out. We we don't want to cause waves. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. We just want to find our niche and fit in like everybody else so that we won't be bothered. We're jealous, in fact, of our free time. We're jealous and very, very protective of our family time. There's never enough of it, right? And so if we really stop how we live and how we think, if we really were to confess to each other, in our view, life ought to fit more orderly, more neatly into our agenda, into our little box. We want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. And we want it without asking, being asked, or demanded too much. We even define that as the benchmark of success, don't we? Getting what you want, the way that you want it, how that you want it, without much demand. Without having to pay too high a price. And I'll be honest, myself included, that part of the reason why this is such an important passage for us is the truth is also that many of us have been taught and told that this is what following Jesus is all about. Many of us have been told that following Jesus is about the good life, the simple life, the healthy and wealthy life, the safe and secure life, your best life now. That's what's on the radar for both of these guys. That's what's right on on their minds. They're thinking about home, they're thinking about family, they're thinking about economics, and they're thinking about convenience. And what Jesus is saying to them and what Jesus is saying to us is that following him is anything but comfortable or convenient. It requires sacrifice. It requires reorientation. It requires reprioritizing. Beloved, knowing Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, isn't just about following him. It's about trusting him. If you're going to follow Jesus, you really need to trust him. Trust him that you'll have a place to sleep. Trust him that your needs will be provided for. Trust him that you and your family will be looked after, both now and in the future. This morning as we engage this passage, where are our comfort zones? Where are your comfort zones? Where are our comfort zones? The places, the relationships, the resources that are off limits to Jesus. The places, the relationships, and the resources that are comfort zones for us, and therefore they're off limits to everyone, including Jesus. Because, beloved, whatever's coming to your mind right now, well, Jesus can have this, but I'm just going to have this over here. If anything is off limits to Jesus, then whatever that is, if it's a place, if it's a relationship, if it's resources, if anything we define as a comfort zone is off limits to Jesus, that becomes a roadblock to following and trusting Jesus. We move very quickly in this story from Jesus being surrounded by crowds of people to setting sail with his closest friends, the 12 disciples. It's kind of interesting, the movement here in the the story because prior to encountering the two men that we spoke of, Jesus has given the command to get across to the other side of the lake, to cross the Sea of Galilee. And now Jesus actually gets into the boat, and we're told Matthew writes it, I think, intentionally this way, and the disciples followed him. Note the contrast here. Before, there was a crowd. Lots of people who came to listen to Jesus, lots of people who wanted to see Jesus for themselves, but only the disciples followed Jesus. The scribe paid lip service to following Jesus, wherever he went, but it's the twelve that literally got in the boat with Jesus. Another disciple was beckoned by Jesus, follow me. But he wasn't one of the disciples that dipped their oars in the water with Jesus. So Jesus gets into the boat, we're told, and the disciples follow. They placed their trust in him. Their trust in him. Hmm. There's another dimension of trust that we're about to encounter in just a moment. Because it's not long that they're in the boat. It's not long at all, seemingly from the way Matthew describes it, that a furious storm develops that's apparently so fierce that these seasoned fishermen, the seasoned fishermen among the disciples, and remember in their company are some seasoned fishermen who are not new to being on the water. It's so fierce that the seasoned fishermen among the 12 begin to panic. And panic's probably not the right word for it. The end is near, they believe. We're going home to Jesus. Well not Jesus. We're going home to our maker. And it's it's fascinating because again the way that Matthew wants us to understand it is what it's like in that boat is it's like all hell is breaking loose. And if you're not familiar with this at all, the Bible often invokes the sea as being the image, the picture of chaos. And so a storm on the sea is really a picture of all hell breaking loose. And the disciples are panicking. The end is near. Where is Jesus? He's asleep. And so you can imagine this, the disciples flipping out and they go to Jesus. You can imagine this moment. They wake Jesus. Do you imagine they shook him, probably screaming, Lord, save us? We're going to die. You think all oh, hell's breaking Luther, you're gonna die. You're not gonna be going, Are you wake, Jesus? We wake up. You're shaking. You're screaming. And Jesus wakes up, and notice this: we go right past this. Jesus wakes up, right? before he even deals with the weather. Imagine what it's like around them. Imagine how bad it's got to be that they're screaming, save us, we're going to drown, before he even acknowledges the weather. I mean, dude, we're dying here. Deal with that first. Before he even deals with the weather, Jesus says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? You have to imagine that at least one of the 12, one out of 12 has got to go, really, is this the time for this right now? Really? Could you please deal with this? But Jesus doesn't go there. First, he goes, you have little faith, why are you afraid? And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them for waking him up. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for waiting too long to call on him. He doesn't look around and go, man, you let it get this bad before you called on me? Jesus rebukes them. The focus of his ire is their fear. We're going to come back here in a sec addresses the disciples. And then after addressing the disciples, we're told he stands in the boat. And he rebuked the disciples. And now he rebukes the elements. The wind and the waves are told to be quiet. And they do. All is completely calm. It's awesome. Disciples go from to They're completely amazed, Matthew writes. And and one or all of them, maybe it wouldn't be great if they all 12 said it at the same time. What kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? Beloved, do you see it? Do you see it in that beautiful moment? Even though Jesus addresses them before he deals with the weather, they still don't get it. They're still amazed. In essence, Jesus is saying, you followed me into this boat, yet you don't trust me to look after you? You see, the disciples got into the boat. They followed Jesus. But what was apparent through the storm is that they were still learning to trust him. Being a disciple of Jesus is not just about following him. It's about trust. And trusting Jesus, beloved, is more than taking the steps into the boat. It's about making the choice to place the full weight of our lives behind the steps that we take. Following Jesus, trusting Jesus means facing our fears, relying on him when the weather changes and the sailing gets rough. Placing those fears, not holding on to them, placing those fears into his hands. And what's great about this being observers is that our perspective enables to appreciate the irony of how this story plays out. The disciples, let's give them credit, rightly called Jesus Lord. They rightly looked to Jesus. They expected, they looked to him to save them. Lord, save us. Right on. And yet, at the end of it all, they were amazed by his ability to bring their salvation. Do you get it? Lord, save us. Wow, he actually saved us. and before we let the irony of that moment become our moment of superiority oh those silly disciples <laughs> didn't they know better we need to be sure to see ourselves in the story we need to look at each other and see ourselves in the same boat because we too can call jesus lord and we do we can say and we do we sing it we pray it we can say we trust him but in the practicality of our daily lives where do we place the weight of our steps Do we place the weight of the steps that we take on his presence and on his power? When the going gets rough, in the most important decisions of our lives, do we trust him enough to rely on him? Or is praying to Jesus, invoking his name, looking for signs and wonders, an afterthought? Or perhaps one strategy among many for survival and success? I mean, for some people, Jesus seems like a good idea. He seems like a good person. For some people, his teaching and lifestyle they believe provide a good philosophy or code of ethics by which to live. And let's be frank, for some of you, that's why you're here. And if that is you, even to this much of a degree, understand that you fall into what I'm about to say next. Too many of us have a plan B when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. Either on the one hand, they say, okay, Jesus, I will follow you. If this is what you want to do with my life, I will follow you. But then when it gets difficult, when it doesn't go the way that they want or the way that they were expecting or worse, the way they were afraid it always was going to go, we execute plan B. We're going to need a bigger boat. They, or they jump or row to the shore themselves, taking matters into their own hands. For some of us, that's our plan B. Jesus... I'm with you. No, not over there. No, that's not what I was thinking. Others, others, exercise, and this may speak where you are, others of us exercise our various and more practical options first. You know, I mean, this is all, this is great, all this supernatural stuff, but we're logical, reasonable people, and there's more practical things that we can do to control and make sure our lives are happening the way they're supposed to. And so some of us, we use our more practical options first, and Jesus is our last resort. Jesus is break glass in case of emergency. When all of our other options have been exhausted, Jesus is the plan B. You know that prayer. Well, Lord, I've done everything else I can do. I guess it's your turn. Beloved, if we place our trust in Jesus, if we truly rely on him, there is no plan B there is no plan b trusting jesus is facing every fear it's letting go of everything of which we are afraid that we believe only we can handle that we worry about is that, that we worry is that it's powerless to be changed or rest or 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 fixed and instead resting relying and placing our weight on his power what kind of man is this this jesus he's powerful powerful enough to silence the wind and the waves because he made them Powerful enough to heal sickness and disease because he made us. Powerful enough to overcome death itself... ...because he alone can cover and reconcile all the brokenness... ...and chaos and devastation caused by our sin. Jesus performed miracles. This is one of many. And the greatest miracle of all that he performed was at Easter. And he performed these miracles to show us his power. He shows us, shows us his power so that we can know that he is reliable, that he is worthy of our trust. And Jesus wants us to know this. He wants us to know that we have nothing to fear if we follow him. He wants us to know that nothing, there's nothing that we can't put in his hands that he can't handle. He wants us to know that he has power over all things. But beloved, it's easy to let the power of our fears eclipse the power of Jesus in our lives. We come today, each of us, in different places, but the commonality is that in some, our connection is we're all struggling with constant, we all have constant struggles in our relationships. We all have struggles in our work. We have struggles within our families. We have struggle with our finances. We have struggles with our health. Whatever it is, and in those struggles, we can get overwhelmed by the waves and the thunder. But we need to not just know or say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we have to consciously, intentionally, and regularly place our lives, our decisions, our trust in His hands. Not as an afterthought, but as the first thought that we have. And yes, things can get difficult if we choose Jesus. It may involve sacrifice, it may lead to suffering, but no matter what the situation we face in life, we can have assurance that He is powerful enough to get us through those difficult times. The disciples could have turned around and said, you know, we never would have had this problem if we hadn't gotten in the boat with you. (laughs) And for many of us, that's our default position. I never would have had this problem if I didn't get in the boat with this Jesus. But trusting Jesus is knowing that even though things may get difficult with him, even though it may challenge us, he is powerful enough to take us through that as well. Beloved, Jesus wants us to have that assurance. Jesus wants us to have that assurance. Jesus isn't asking us to just close our eyes and cross our fingers that he can help us. Jesus wants to reveal to us and show us his power to deal with all things in our lives. But in order for us to see that, in order for us to experience that, we have to rely on him. We have to trust him all along the way. Ye have little faith, why are you so afraid? What are we holding on to that we need to let go of this morning? What is one area in your life that you're struggling to trust Jesus with? Is it money? Is it your career? Is it your direction in life? Your sense of purpose? Is it a relationship? What is one thing this morning that comes to your mind when I ask the question that you're struggling to trust Jesus? Where in your life is the power of fear greater than the power of Christ in your life? Where in your life is the disconnect that we witness with the disciples? You're in the boat. You're following Jesus. You look to Jesus to save you. But functionally, you're amazed when Jesus actually shows up in your life. Trust is something we learn, something that grows, something that's built and is strengthened as our relationship develops. And Jesus helps us with that, facing our fears and learning to rely on him if we let him, if we let him. And that brings us to the last part of our story for today. When Jesus and the disciples make it to the other side of the lake, let's just say your average welcoming party doesn't greet them. Two screaming demoniacs come rushing towards them, out of the shadows. They encounter two demon-possessed men, the walking dead, who apparently have been haunting the local cemetery for quite some time. So long, in fact, that Matthew lets us know that everybody in that part of town knows you just stay away from there. And in a bit of irony, and I hope you didn't miss it because this is I love love irony in Scripture, and it's so beautiful here. And a bit of irony, the disciples who just moments ago after seeing Jesus' supremacy over the storm cry out, what kind of man is this? Receive their answer when they come ashore from the demons themselves. What do you want with us, son of man? They call him son of man. They know who he is. Son of God, they know who he is. And and notice, they're not amazed or surprised by Jesus' power. He hasn't even exercised it yet, and they know it's coming. In fact, Jesus' power is so great in this story that it only takes one word from his lips to send the demons into a herd of pigs, after which they drown in a lake. The only fear here, when they get to the other side of the lake, the only fear that's here is the terror of the demons, who recognize and experience the power of Christ to defeat and destroy the forces of evil with one effortless word. Go. It's beautiful. It's just like Martin Luther wrote, right? Mar- Mighty Fortress is our God. Martin Luther writes this of Satan. One little word shall fell him. Go. This brief episode at the end here is a, is a further encouragement to us, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have nothing to lose and everything to gain when we surrender our fears and place our trust in Christ. But this story also stands as a caution against, against holding on to our fears rather than living by faith. It's a caution. It sheds light on how fear can get in the way of our trust in Jesus. The two men are completely healed, we're told. A part of the region that had become so violent that it was quarantined, no one could pass that way, is now a viable free means of passage. Sounds to me like something exciting. Sounds to me like something to celebrate. And we read the whole town comes out when they hear about it. Sounds about right when something like that happens. The whole town ought to come out and see what it's about. But when the whole town comes out to meet Jesus, instead of a celebration, instead of a spontaneous worship service, instead of trusting Jesus, you heard it, they beg Jesus, please leave. Please leave. Could you please get out of our neighborhood? Don't miss the implication of this reaction, beloved. A whole town of people let their fears get the better of them, and they outright reject Jesus. The community would rather la- would rather have left matters the way they were. The locals would choose to keep a few people visibly sick, to let a couple of demons haunt their lives and cut off access to life. Because remember, they can't go past the tombs. They would prefer this rather than experience the healing and transformation that Jesus brings. Their neighborhood was so afraid, and this is perhaps the most horrifying thing, their neighborhood was so afraid that they had actually learned to tolerate the kingdom of darkness. To the point where it actually seemed preferable to the kingdom of God. Beloved, I ask once more where in our lives, where in our community, where in our church has the fear run so deep? Where has the fear in our lives been kept alive for so long that we are willing to deal with the devil we know rather than encounter and trust the Jesus that we can't always understand? Unresolved anger. Unhealed pain, unconfessed sin are the devil's playground. The devil's playground. And it's easy. It's easy to let exclusion, it's easy to let contempt, it's easy to let spite get in the way of forgiveness. Oh, it seems so sweet and easy. It can feel safer, can it? It can feel safer to nurse our wounds to find strength in our pain. Even if it's only short-lived, it can be so tempting and safer to nurse our wounds and find strength in our pain rather than opening our lives and our hearts to love each other. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that we can follow Jesus from a distance, that we can keep him at arm's length. Beloved, following Jesus means exercising our demons when we don't let Jesus exercise the demons in our life, when we don't let Jesus minister to the unresolved anger, the unhealed pain and the unconfessed sin, when we don't let Jesus exercise the demons in our life, we cannot and we will not trust him with our lives. If we don't let Jesus exercise the demons in our life, we will always prefer pigs to people. We will always prefer swine to a savior. If you want to know Jesus, if you purpose to follow him, you have to trust him. It can't be selected, it can't selective. It can't be a negotiated relationship. It can't be as long as Jesus conforms to my terms, as long as Jesus is about helping me get what I want with my life. It's not just about believing what Jesus says. It's not just about following Jesus. It's about placing the weight of one's steps Behind Jesus, it's looking to, relying on Jesus. It's being willing to have our lives and our communities radically transformed. Trust implies the willingness to take risks. Trust implies the willingness to experience change. Think about it. The people that we trust in our lives, we would do anything for them. The people that we trust in our lives we would do anything for them we would give them whatever they need if we had means we would go wherever they want us to go even if it's unfamiliar unexpected unknown to us if we trusted them we would go if we would give and go and do anything even if it seemed illogical or impossible on their behalf because we trust them and so beloved if jesus is our lord and savior if that's our confession then trusting jesus means that we've got to give our life to him to shape and to use however he wishes. Jesus himself said, whoever wants to find life must lose it. Jesus himself said, true life, eternal life, abundant life is a narrow road that few can find. We need Jesus. And the good news this morning The good news on the journey of Lent, the gospel, the good news is that trusting Jesus, exercising our demons, facing our fears, getting pushed out of our comfort zones is not something we have to do ourselves. All we have to do is lean. All we have to do is lean, and you know the hymn, On the Everlasting Arms. All we have to do is lean in his direction. Tip the weight of our lives on his mercy, his grace, his goodness, and his power. Jesus seeks great faith, but do you notice again and again he accepts little faith. Jesus seeks courage, but do you notice again and again he accepts cowardice. Because Jesus is the sower. Jesus is the sower seeking to plant the seeds of confidence in our lives. Jesus purposes to build our trust, but he takes us initially ...as we are. And in the end... ...our trust in Him comes... ...when we realize... ...His trust in us. Our trust in Him comes... ...when we realize His trust in us. That He knowingly placed His life... ...into our hands. Despite our ignorance and confusion. That He placed His trust in us... ...that He willingly... ...gave His life... ...for our salvation despite our betrayal and our rejection. In the end, our trust in him begins when we finally realize that he is trustworthy. When we see an empty tomb. When he shows us the wounds and the scars and says, peace be with you. When death has been defeated and fear is no more. Beloved, that is what the journey of Lent is all about. Learning to trust Jesus anew with our lives. Let's begin that journey again today. Amen. Amen. Let the first.